Welcome to Displaced, I'm Ravi Gurumurthy. And I am Grant Gordon. Today on Displaced, we are discussing fragility, not of Grant's ego or his uh, job oh, prospects. Oh, um, harsh, <laughs> harsh. What type of fragility are we talking about then, Ravi? Uh, we're talking about fragile states, but actually we're not. We'll soon discover that fragility is a concept that extends beyond states now. It's all about fragile contexts. So I'm actually excited to talk about fragility uh, primarily because I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, both academically and as a practitioner and policymaker, and I still have no idea what it means. But we're going to dive into that. I mean, I think it's one of those uh, words that's been used for for at least a, you know, a decade in, in a lot of popular discourse in, amongst policymakers. It's also changed and morphed. So uh, I think probably 10, 15 years ago, it really referred to states which lack the capacity and will and legitimacy to govern, whereas now it's become a more multidimensional concept. In 2015, the OECD released a report that plotted out five dimensions of uh, fragility that included uh, the rule of law and justice. Secondly, institutions, which does refer to state capacity. Thirdly, economic growth and prosperity. Fourthly, more environmental resilience and climate-related factors. Um, and fifth is the level of violence and insecurity in the area. And what I think it did was captured more of the risk factors around economic security and environmental factors, but also a wider definition of what we mean by uh, state capacity, accountability and legitimacy. So this actually may sound like a bit of like an academic uh, debate on how you kind of define something. And it is. Uh but it's also really important, and and we dive into actually how fragility uh, not only affects a lot of people, but really shapes both foreign policy and humanitarian response. But just to get concrete, in 2018, it was estimated that about 58 contexts or states are extreming some sort of fragility, and there are 15 extremely fragile contexts. What that actually translates into is that 1.8 billion people, or about 24% of the world's population, lives in some form of fragility. And increasingly, as the world makes progress on actually reducing poverty, what we're going to see is that the world's poor are going to be increasingly living in fragile states. So it's estimated right now that about half of the world's poor will be in those spaces by about two, uh, 2030. Uh, and as Grant said, because of this definition, you're seeing policymakers, NGOs like IRC, donors adopt it and utilise it in their decision-making. So DFID, for example, the UK aid ministry, has been on a path to increasing the amount of resources going to what it defines as fragile places. The IRC, when we think about whether to enter a country, we go through an assessment of our entry and exit criteria, which really relates to the degree of fragility of that context. And we are lucky because on today's show, we have got Nancy Lindborg, who is currently the president of the United States Institute of Peace, USIP, um, and has a long career working on fragility and conflict-affected states. Uh, prior to joining USIP, she served as the assistant administrator for the Bureau of Democracy, Conflict, and Humanitarian Assistance at USAID. And she was also previously the president of Mercy Corps. Uh, she has dedicated her life to not only providing humanitarian assistance, but to working on these issues. And she is the perfect person to help dive in to what is seemingly an academic debate, but is actually really meaningful. So here's Nancy Limborg. Nancy, we are so excited to have you on Displaced today. Great to be here. So I'm excited to talk to you because 
despite having worked in humanitarian response for many years and doing a PhD in political science on the micro foundations of violence, I feel like I still don't understand what fragility means. And this is actually because I think that fragility has essentially come to mean almost everything and in doing so means very little. It obviously includes states affected by conflict or institutions that are non-responsive to citizens. It now means extremism, states that are plagued by drug trade. And the list goes on and on and on. And so just as a starter, what's a conceptualization and definition of fragility that you find inclusive enough to really capture what we mean, but parsimonious for it to not just to be everything? Right. Theories of everything are not helpful. Yeah. Um, I find fragility a really important framework for getting at exactly that question. And, it, and, and I would define it as fragility is when the social contract between a government and its people has broken down, that it has frayed. And that can mean either there is a lack of capacity for the state to provide for the basic needs of its citizens and or that the state is not legitimate in the eyes of its people, that it is um, prioritizing the, uh, the needs of you know, a political elite uh, or it is repressive. Fragile states are usually characterized by a lot of social division. And there are many ways to measure it using a variety of social, economic, and political indicators. And what we find is that states that are high on any of those indices, um, measuring those kind of indicators, are closely linked to states that have a lot of violent extremism, that are the sources of large outflows of migrants and refugees, and that are more prone to conflict. And, and fundamentally what it means is they are, they are fragile in the, in the, in the um, terms of not being able to deal with external shocks. So if there's a natural disaster or if there's a conflict, they can't manage, they can't respond, and that's when things are further broken down. So you think about it in terms of states that lack the capacity, will, legitimacy to provide basic needs, cope with basic sh with shocks. What about places that are uh, pockets within those states? Because I think there's been a shift in how we think about fragility over the last sort of, 10 years, uh, which has broadened the definition, made it more multidimensional, but has also made it less state-centric. That's exactly right. And it, the OECD, of course, has shifted to talking about states of fragility, meaning that they can be pockets within a state. And by the same token, you can have a fragile state with less fragile subnational units, whether at a provincial or at a state level, understanding that these are always multidimensional and you have lots of different complexities in, in a particular unit. Yeah, I mean, I think about sort of the borderlands between Afghanistan and Pakistan as a good example of that, because, you know, Pakistan, in many other measures, would be a sort of functioning state. Um, but obviously, in those tribal belt areas, there is a particularly weak form of governance. Um, one question I've got, though, in terms of this fragility conversation is what conversations and decisions flow from that definition of fragilities? For instance, are funding decisions made based on where states in particular sit on a fragility index? Well, not as much as I think they should be, because what we're seeing, if you look at it uh, from a development perspective and from the development donors perspective, what you see in those states that rank the highest on the fragility list is that you also have 
the the most stubborn clustering of poverty, um, as well as the whole displacement question. And uh, that is the most urgent development challenge ahead of us. And particularly if you are thinking about achieving the sustainable development goals, uh, which do have wonderful goal 16 embedded in the heart of them, which is access to justice and to more accountable, inclusive governments, that those challenges are deepest, steepest, and clustered in the states that are most fragile. Just coming back to the definition, I want to actually like break apart the social contract piece. You a still bit. don't know what fragility is, do you? Yeah. <laughs> I still struggle with it. I have spent a decent amount of time in areas in Sub-Saharan Africa, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Liberia, Sierra Leone, places kind of way outside urban capitals or peri-urban spaces where if you went to people, they know their nationality, but there's absolutely no relationship between them and the state. There's no social service provision by the state. They don't think about the state as a place to adjudicate conflicts or disputes that they have. They have no expectations of the state in a weird way. And so... One question I have in this definition of fragility is, is this an artifact of a foreign policy apparatus that needs to deal with states because those are the like entities you engage rather than the way that actually people experience a state? Because I do think there's a difference between people who aren't getting what they want from the state or the state has reneged on them compared to people who live in areas where there is no state. Well, but also, your example was the DRC, which is plagued by roiling conflict that has persisted for decades. And, you know, think of an example that mirrors what you just articulated, whether it's the DRC or Central African Republic or Libya, where you have an absence of that kind of provision of core services, including perhaps most importantly, citizen security is where you have the greatest level of, of insecurity, of conflict, of conflict that turns violent, of the propensity for civil wars or sporadic conflicts, as you see in a lot of these states. So it's not, it, it, it is obviously an artifact of the Westphalian system, but it is also an acknowledgement that states have responsibilities to their systems, to their, to their citizens. It's not just about the rights of the state. It's about what the state owes its people. And it requires thinking about addressing the solutions, not just from the state level down, but also from the citizen level up. And Grant, even in the context you were talking about, would those people not recognize um, the existence of local authorities, even if not a central one? But so I think this is where I get, where I think it's kind of challenging because it's not that in these places there's an absence of governance, right? There are local community, uh, there's local forms of community power and structure. Um, there may be bandits in these areas. There may be rebel groups that oversee these areas and provide social services. It's kind of very well documented. And, and a social contract, if you like, sort right. of exists within them right. as, a, well, as this, a bargain. And this is what ISIS successfully did in a number of places. I mean, when you look yeah. at some of the papers that came out of the administration of their territories, I mean, it was, it was a bureaucracy where they were tracking the wages of the people who worked in ISIS to provide services. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a well-functioning bureaucracy similar to the state. And my question actually is motivated by, is it always right to actually engage the state or do we start actually in taking fragility seriously, start to engage some of these other levels? 
Well, I think you need to do all of the above. I, I, I mean, when you talk about fragile states, I think one of the the big misconceptions is that means you have to only engage with the state and it's about the state because it's really about the relationship. It's about the relationship with the state, with its people, and it's at every level, subnational, regional, uh, national. And that is the core part of the definition is that it's about the relationship between the two. And you absolutely can have, you know, a tribal leadership or you know, ISIS leadership that is being more responsive to its pe to, to the people than the national government is. And this is why those national governments are, in fact, so fragile. You were saying earlier that uh, fragility as a concept doesn't necessarily have the same traction as it should do on the allocation of aid resources. But I'm interested in where it does have traction. So you've worked in government, you've run Mercy Corps, uh, a major uh, NGO in this area. Is fragility used as a conceptual framework by practitioners and policymakers? And if so, how? Well, I think it is increasingly used. And in fact, we've seen since 2011 that there has been an increasing and growing consensus that this is a way to understand the critical development challenges, that we won't be able to really move towards our ultimate goals through sector investments alone. Because you can do very successful work in agriculture, in education, in health, all very important. But one conflict, one violent conflict will overturn all of those investments. So you need to be thinking of it more holistically and thinking about the governance issues and think about what is enshrined in the, as, in the Sustainable Development Goals as Goal 16, which is justice and accountable, inclusive governance. Yeah, so I was going to ask you almost, how does it make you think about interventions differently? Because if you think holistically, uh, in terms of the system of interacting parts, it does lead you to a focus on things like governance. But in many ways, that's arguably an area where we know the, the weakest in terms of uh, evidence compared to agriculture, education, health. Um, so when it comes to thinking about solutions, how has this thinking on fragility, particularly as it's evolved, changed the way you think about solutions? So I, I think the most important is um, taking a look at some of the evidence that we've gathered since 2011. And even in the last year and a half, there's been an acceleration of people really looking deeply into this issue and understanding that uh, first of all, we need to really emphasize local ownership, that there needs to be some mutually accountable approaches that work with the local actors, both civil society uh, as well as you know, national level government actors, because it has to be a, a, a set of solutions that they're invested in. Um, secondly, that we know it takes time. You've got to sustain these efforts. They're not going to be done in a year or two. There needs to be a long-term view, and it needs to be a plan that you can iterate flexibly because these are always changing situations, but with early wins, both to give confidence to the people uh, in, that, uh, in the target area as well as to the U.S. Congress and other donor groups. And there's, there's a longer list, but it, it, most importantly is that we know that a lot of these challenges are not solved through development work alone that you need to think of how this connects to security and to the politics. And that, I think, is one of the er areas that we very frequently fall down on, that you've got um, 
our diplomatic actors, our military actors, and our development actors working separately with separate sets of assumptions and separate timelines. But by bringing them into a shared framework, you have a greater possibility of uh, getting some, some traction and progress. So I think it'd be great to actually dive into each of those, if you don't mind. Let's actually just start with the first point, which was local ownership. And this is a, a challenging one for me as well, because on the one hand, you have a, a growing body of evidence in certain domains. And yet one of the macro pieces is that you have to try to make things more demand driven. It doesn't work when you just simply uh, put in place a standardised framework and then you just get organisations mimicking that and not actually really achieving the functionality. And yet I don't see much evidence of of locally owned, locally driven processes working. For instance, if you look at the evidence on community driven reconstruction and development, that has not shown particularly positive effects. So is there an example that you see in your work of local ownership being done well, where you meld effectively what we know about, for instance, health system strengthening with a proper care and attention to local ownership? Well, I think there are, first of all, it is one of the most challenging issues. And, you know, we've all given lip service to local ownership for a long time. And I don't think, on the one hand, it's done with as much attention as we think. And it is very difficult uh, because there's both a lack of capacity and there's also the politics that we often don't pay attention to. So on the one hand, you need to have a partner, uh, whether local partner at the subnational level or civil society or, or um, at the national level, you have to have someone with whom you can work. The example that's often used is uh, in Colombia, where over three different U.S. administrations, there was a close partnership with, with two different Colombian administrations to help that country end 50 years of civil war. And it combined work on human rights, on development, on security, and it had full political buy-in from both sides so that you brought the weight of the diplomats to, to keep this process um, agreed upon, mutually agreed upon. So that's a big chunk of examples. When you start disaggregating... And in that example, just talk us through the partnership model because... It's very easy, I think, when you're in a diplomatic or development ministry to unintentionally coerce and uh, nudge uh, certain organisations, particularly if they're highly dependent on aid or those diplomatic ties. How do you actually get the right partnership model working? Well, I think that that will look different in different places. Um, and I would note of great interest was the World Bank's World Development Report of 2018 that uh, – looked very specifically at how do we think about the policy incentives for the policy elites? Because over and over again, we go into countries with really great policies. If you want to get mm -hmm. to greater peace and prosperity, here's this wonderful set of policies, but they're not adopted. Why not? Because the incentives are wrong for the policy elites to move something forward. With the Columbia example, there were a lot of incentives for the, for the policy elites to sign up to take a pathway that would help that country move from being a failed narco state to one of greater prosperity and to be a respected member of the international community. Um, and, and then, you know, there was a lot more detail to it, but that was the big frame. It's quite interesting if you look at the New Deal 
uh, for fragile states, which was the idea of a group of states that claimed the label of being fragile. And they came up with a framework that they put out there to the donor community and said, join with us in pursuing this kind of approach and we will be partners with you. So it was their framework um, and it was an invitation for the development community to work with them within that framework. I like that World Bank report because if, as I've always said, if a man's hungry, you don't give him a fish, provide him the incentives to fish. You're right. There you go. Um, <laughs> but let me let me push on this a little bit more because I think that I observe two parallel conversations going on that are often in conflict with each other. On the fragility side, there's a sense that we want to move towards local ownership. And, and I think that really means having governments – identify their own priorities and how they want to pursue them. It's providing a lot of flexibility there within uh, a set of foundations that are, you know, building inclusively, making sure you're providing security and and kind of that work. But it's really setting them up to, to drive their own path forward. On the other side, you have international frameworks around objectives and goals, particularly the sustainable development goals, 17 goals, 169 indicators. And in a sense, there's like, a desire to both have states determine what they want, and then there's a sense that it's like, well, here's your 169 targets. Here's everybody's 169 targets. And I have a hard time squaring what I often see as like two conflicting conversations that sit very closely with each other. And we'd love to hear how you think about those. Well, on the one hand, almost all those countries signed up to the sustainable development goals. So those aren't owned by any one country or they're not being imposed on other countries. Um, to start with. Number two is that um, I would note you've got to, and I know you have this in mind, but I think we need to be careful to always remember it's not just the governments, it's the people of those countries. And that is one of the big challenges is how you fully engage them in developing what is the pathway to move out of fragility to greater peace and prosperity. Um, And finally, there has to be a mutually agreed upon, mutual accountable framework so that there are requirements that the donor community will ask for, but it's got to be in return for the more sustained kind of partnership that often – and coordinated partnership that often is not available to a, a state that truly is committed to moving out of fragility. And instead, you get often a cacophony of different donors with different – agenda approaches, you know, stop and start of funding. I mean, there is responsibility on the side of the donor community as well. And it's about that mutual agreement um, that I think is, is, is an opportunity to do it differently. That speaks to your second point about time as well, and that often you don't see strategies staying the course. Uh, there's lots of chopping and changing on, on both sides. But how realistic is sustained uh, strategic thinking, given the dynamism both within countries, particularly the most uh, unstable ones, but also, frankly, on the uh, the donor side, given short time horizons, people moving on after one or two or three years, uh, political changes and so on. This is why it hasn't been fully embraced and, and moved forward. But I do think there is an opportunity, given this increased convergence of consensus, And even over the last year, I would argue there's been an acceleration of people really embracing this as the development challenge we really need to wrestle 
with. And there are both in, uh, increased new studies, like the Cameron Commission mm-hmm. that came out of uh, former Prime Minister Nancy's pointing at me just for some bridges. Don't, po- don't associate <laughs> me with David Cameron, please. <laughs> Nonetheless, uh, it was a very distinguished group, uh, the group that was good. put that together. Um, there, there is legislation in the U.S. House that's already been co-sponsored and, and moved pending legislation out of the Senate. And there's the task force that the U.S. Institute of Peace has been asked by the U.S. Senate to host that's looking at uh, specific recommendations for tackling the roots of extremism in fragile states. These are opportunities to really move forward the consolidated learnings of the last decade and try to overcome a lot of the bureaucratic and political barriers that have kept us from doing it differently, despite having a really good sense that we're not doing it right. When you look back historically over the past four, five, or six decades of humanitarian I'm not relief, that old. No, no, no. no. <laughs> From your that's, like a, that's a historical <laughs> lens rather than – I'm thinking about the post-World War II yes. age regime. Um, when you look back at that time um, and that kind of arc of different policies and frameworks and approaches – are there examples that give you confidence that we can overcome the kind of electoral horizons and short timelines that dominates politics? I mean, that Ravi's talking about, this isn't a question unique to humanitarianism, right? It's climate change. It's anything that has a long-term feature to it. And so when you look at like fragility at this moment, historically, what gives you confidence about what's different now? Well, I would pull down the example that we always point to for good reason, which is the Marshall Plan. And people think that it's invoked because it's some gigantic program. That's one of its features. But more importantly, what it also was was a shared framework with partners uh, so that you had a coordinated set of actions. It engaged the private sector in a very um, important way. Uh, And it was sustained and it went over time. And so I would argue that the challenge of fragility is at the same level of challenge as what the Marshall Plan was put together to tackle. And it doesn't necessarily say, oh, we need to come up with an absolutely gigantic aid package, although that would be nice. More importantly, we need to use the resources that we already have in a way that is more comprehensive and that is built on some of these core lessons. I would add that looking over the arc of the last, you know, 40, 50-ish years, as the institutions that we've built to tackle development challenges, as they have matured and become more sophisticated, what we've seen is they've also become increasingly stovepiped. And you have increased redundancy, you've got a lot of repetition, and you've got this specialization that tracks efforts down these ever-narrower lanes, and they're not able to tackle the core causes that will fundamentally overturn your development gains. And that post-Second sort of Second World War era was also about uh, a multi-pronged strategy using not just development levers, but security Absolutely. And, and, and politics. Absolutely. And, and that's the sort of the third theme. Just tell us more about what does that mean in practice? Um, wh- why does this, uh, th- th- this need to involve all different dimensions of, of state power? Well, let me give you a really powerful example. Uh, U.S. Institute of Peace partnered with Chatham House and Stanford University to pull together um, a retrospective of the 
of a decade of action in Afghanistan. Um, and the key outcome was a clarification that we had actually had three separate lines of effort, we and our coalition partners, where you had the intelligence effort seeking to understand what was going on with al-Qaeda. You had a military effort seeking to defeat the Taliban. And you had a development effort that was seeking to rebuild the state. And in fact, those efforts canceled each other out. The kinds of activities and approaches that were pursued in the first two undercut the effort to rebuild the state. And so by not having a more shared understanding among those lines of effort of what, what really are we trying to accomplish here, um, we squandered, I would argue, a lot of investment, and we didn't we didn't in, we in no way were able to really maximize uh, incredible amounts of capability that could have moved us in a different way had they been more coordinated. To, to get concrete, when you then look back at the past 10 years in Afghanistan, if you would have had this framework beyond kind of the higher level coordinated approach to thinking about this problem, concretely, kind of on the ground, what do you think would have changed? Well, a, a lot a lot of what you see in a place like Afghanistan and specifically with Afghanistan, it goes back to your earlier example of the DRC. The government wasn't relevant to many people outside of Kabul or even in Kabul for that matter. And so you had no trust in the government and you had reliance on these alternative power structures. So to do things that undermined further people's trust in the government uh, was only going to exacerbate some of the core dynamics that were happening there. I think um, in an ideal world, it would have been um, an effort that understood it would take a long time. It would have been probably more modest in terms of the investment that went in at any given moment and sought to uh, enable um, the ability of the state to be more responsive and the, and the civil society to have greater capacity. I would note that against what I just outlined is we, we shouldn't overlook the investments in civil society, in girls' education, in health that um, have had – a really important impact, um, but the citizen security issues are still fairly egregiously not yet addressed. I mean, Afghanistan is a good example where I think you would have had a clear political strategy as well about what kind of settlement would exist in Afghanistan that brought different parties together, probably involving reconciliation with the Taliban. Absolutely. Rather than a strategy where the military were doing things or often undermining any potential for that uh, political strategy because they were still viewing the uh, the Taliban as irreconcilable. But it- and that's the importance of bringing peace building into the equation uh, so that it's development, humanitarian action and peace building in addition to the diplomatic and security strategies. But instead of operating in completely separate lanes that don't talk to each other. But even when you know there were attempts to try to do that, I remember there was something called in the, in the UK government, the stabilization unit, which was meant to bring together DFID, defense, Uh, foreign office uh, actors, and it was jointly reporting to different cabinet ministers. And it never really worked, to be completely frank. Um, You had lots of joining up in in different ways on the ground in in Afghanistan. And that was partly because the, the taskmasters at the top, the cabinet ministers, if you like, had very different perspectives, incentives that were sending messages down to their 
bureaucrats. So even the joining up at the bottom was not really supported by shared strategy. So is there an example really where you've actually had a coherence between diplomacy, development, um, and, and uh, you know, all the levers that the state has in recent years? Because I'm struggling to think of uh, a good example. Well, the best example I, is to return to the one I already put on the table, which is Colombia. And that yep. is where there was a joined up from the top down strategy. What you'll see in the uh, New Deal for Fragile States, which was introduced in 2011, signed by uh, most of the development donors at the Busan conference, is it was similarly plagued by both within the donors as well as within the fragile states themselves, where you had the planning or the development ministries full on, but and maybe the treasury ministries, but not the ministries of foreign affairs or the, our State Department or defense ministries. And so I, I, I think that a lot of observers see a good idea with the New Deal uh, for fragile states that was cobbled by exactly that. And that's the opportunity. Um, I'm very encouraged by the recently um, released Stabilization Assistance Review that the U.S. State Department, DOD, and USAID recently released because it does represent an important effort for those three entities to agree on vocabulary, to agree on some core principles, and to create the possibilities for more joined-up action. I mean, it, 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 the, in my mind, the big question is we have a lot of lessons about what didn't work, a couple of lessons of what did work, and now is the time and now is the opportunity to move those into action. And so we really need to stay focused on, so how do you do that? I'm just scarred from uh, previous bureaucratic battles. I can remember when I was in the Foreign Office, I tried, one of my first things I tried to do was create a joint strategy unit between the diplomats, defence um, and aid. And it felt eminently sensible given the war in Afghanistan and Iraq and many of the other theatres. And David Miliband was very personally behind it. And yet that was viewed as incredibly threatening to the independence of these different institutions, particularly the International Development Ministry that fought very hard to divorce itself from the diplomats. And it seemed crazy that if you're talking about how you join up and cohere within a given place, you don't have some joint strategizing and planning, because unless you have that at the top, you're not going to get the operational joining up. Well, I, so I... I feel your pain, <laughs> and I probably share some, not therapy, share just, some yeah. scars. <laughs> We're moving into the scars. second half of the show. <laughs> That's right. But I would note that one of the—it's it, interesting that it didn't work with DFID because I think one of the challenges here in Washington is that the development voice is rarely at the table with an equal voice, and so that is probably why the independence is so insisted upon. But you know, if you take good management theory. Uh, when you have shared understandings and, and, and shared goals and sort of a framework that we all want to get to that endpoint, you don't need to have everybody fully lashed up at every step of the way, but you just need to have mutual visibility that enables you to move in a way that is that is pulling people together uh, in terms of the goal instead of undercutting your efforts. We're going to be back in just a minute with Nancy. If you're thinking about saving money this summer, why not start by paying less interest on your credit card balances? Refinance with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. It's an easy way to save hundreds to thousands of dollars and lower your interest rate. 
Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans from 5.89% APR with AutoPay, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 18% APR. You could get your funds as soon as the day you apply. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a great interest rate and no fees, so say goodbye to high-interest credit cards this summer and start saving with Lightstream. Displaced listeners can save even more with an additional interest rate discount on top of Lightstream's already low rates. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash vox. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash vox. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com for more information. I wanted to pull on something uh, that you kind of mentioned around. We've got a lot of lessons on what not to do, and and you've spoken about some of them. One, right, obviously, is kind of the disjointed coordination that we were providing therapy for Ravi about just a second ago in his context. (laughs) He's looking better. (laughs) And I would love you to kind of top line out what you think one or two or three of the other major core lessons are. And one of the frames that I want to ask it in is actually – uh, a trend that's happening in which increasingly the world's poor are going to be located in fragile states and that a lot of institutions that have the mandate of reducing poverty are now going to be operating in areas where they haven't, very specifically the World Bank, some of the new UN institutions. They're going to be playing ball in a different court, and it's the court from which you actually see these lessons. So what are they and how should people who work at these institutions think about engaging these states? Well, I, I think the World Bank is an institution that has taken this challenge pretty seriously. If you look at their latest um, IDA replenishment, the international development account, mm-hmm. um, has record new levels of investment going to fragile states with some new mechanisms and some new approaches that begin to address some of these challenges that we've just discussed. Um, the uh, I think one of the core issues is making sure that it is more inclusive economic growth. Uh, That's one of the hallmarks of a fragile state is that it usually is not uh, inclusive uh, economic opportunities. So uh, that, I think, will be an important way for for the bank, but also other financial instruments to move forward. And there's a very encouraging – Um, new act in the U.S. Congress right now called the BUILD Act, which is expanding the international uh, finance development core within the U.S. government, taking what used to be OPIC, Mm -hmm. Overseas Private Investment Corporation, and some of the capabilities of USAID and expanding that out a little bit. Because, uh, you know, if you go back to that wonderful 2011 World Bank World Development Report, basically they boil it down to jobs, justice, and security. And the economic piece in the most fragile of these countries remains one of the biggest challenges because it's so hard to get investment to go in a way that's useful to those places. So focus on inclusive development is inclusive Inclusive growth. economic growth yeah. and opportunity. The problem is, you know, if we focus too much on bringing Ex, you know, international uh, investment, foreign direct, investment, in. foreign direct mm-hmm. investment. You know, I've talked to a lot of companies who are very proud of being quite risky, and the riskiest place they go to is Ghana. So, That's... getting, getting, especially American capital, does not like to flow to these places. They're not interested in the level of risk. And 
given that fragile contexts are going to be where the majority of, of poverty is going to be concentrated, I think it's already 50% of global poverty is, is, is in fragile states. You do have this drive to spend more money there, including uh, the World Bank being more active. But you've got this countervailing pressure, which is it's very, very hard to spend money effectively in places where the institutions are very weak. Uh, they may not have the capacity to absorb that or it might uh, not necessarily spent on the, on the things you want it to be spent on. So how do you balance those two pressures, that need to probably focus more on fragile states in terms of spending, but the difficulty of the institutional makeup? Well, first of all, I, I think you've got to go right back to the this is going to take time principle. Most of these are generational challenges, and we can't expect that investments will yield tomorrow uh, an election commission that is foolproof. Um, I would add the importance of putting peace-building architecture into a country like Nigeria. And what do you mean by that? So I was recently in Nigeria, and I was very struck by the fact that several of the states, which hold a, fa a fair amount of power in that system, have uh, put together me offices and mechanisms for adjudicating conflict, for mediating and negotiating for example, between the herders and the farmers uh, throughout the middle belt of Nigeria, that there, there needs to be greater capacity to just manage the inevitable conflicts that oh, turn violent so quickly. Um, there's all, and then the final piece I would add is um, when you're looking at the kind of investments that are critical is, is the whole security sector that is under invested in and under thought about in the development world. But unless and until people feel safe, uh, you will have instability in that country and it, and it distorts a lot of things. And we put, uh, we the U.S., put a lot of investment into security from a mill-to-mill -mill perspective, military-to-military. -military. But often that's not the security challenge these countries face. They're not facing external pressures. They need police forces that understand how to keep community safe, that they build trust with their communities. It, I was going to ask you, but the sort of the boring question again, which is, where have you seen that done well? Again, where, where you've, you've seen police forces built up in terms of their capacity? Well, so I was also recently in Tunisia, which is a bright spot in terms of a country that because they invested in women's education and civil society decades ago, and any Tunisian that you ask will cite this, that that was the key to their ability to survive the Arab Spring. So what's interesting is both that they did it, that it made a difference, and it's embedded in the national narrative. They're quite proud of it. They are currently struggling right now with a police force that is uh, still an artifact of a very repressive regime. And a lot of citizens still experience it that way and see it that way. But they are working hard, both uh, retraining their existing police force, trying to engage them in more community police efforts. And at the police ac academy level, um, USIP is working with them to redo the entire curriculum that they've now redesigned and are rolling out. So. This will not happen overnight, but they recognize it and they are putting specific investment um, in trying to change that, understanding how important it is. So you've talked a lot about consensus that's occurring in the space. And uh, you recently wrote a piece for Brookings, Fragility 2.0, in which you actually looked at all of the reports, some of which you've mentioned here. 
on fragility to identify where consensus is. And from your perspective, when you went through that exercise of looking at all the flagship documents that had eminent scholars and policymakers and practitioners and diplomats around the table to to put together, and you identified the areas where they did hold commonality, what surprised you about the areas where there wasn't a consensus? What were the kind of radical pieces where you're like, oh, that's that's not where the field is going? I really didn't come across um, radical disagreement. Um, I would argue the bigger challenge is coming up with consensus on how do we take all of those great ideas into action? How do we overcome the bureaucratic and political hurdles? Because I, I think we have very, you know, not enough examples of where in a very concerted, focused, deliberate way we have put those lessons to work. And one of the big trade-offs I, I've seen uh, exist is between an agenda that's focused, for instance, on countering extremism and countering terrorism in fragile states versus one that's more about uh, development and, and building institutions. Do you see that as a significant trade-off? And how do you uh, encourage leadership teams to weigh that trade-off, particularly when you're trying to get those development, defence, diplomacy actors together? Well, I think the difference is if you're looking at countering violent extremism in a large frame or looking at countering the roots, looking at what are the, what are the root causes. So it's maybe more of a short versus long-term tension rather than a uh, – because arguably in the long term, those things are all mutually reinforcing. They are, but when I – I think there are a lot of strategies around countering violent extremism that take you into the countering the recruitment or looking at what's happening on the internet – uh, that aren't really about the roots. It's about looking at how to counter the manifestation um, as opposed to what were the causes uh, in the at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, and so that, to me, th- those are two very different uh, realms of activity that would create, um, you know, policy directions for, for policymakers to consider. But do you think that is a, a significant impediment in terms of getting the different actors within governments on the same page, this uh, short-term desire to uh, disrupt and, uh, and, and tackle violent extremism within very short timeframes? Well, I think if, you're, if you decide to take the pathway of looking at the roots, and this is very much the passion of the co-chairs of the task force that U.S. Institute of Peace is currently hosting at the request of Congress. Um, This is a task force on looking at the roots of violent extremism in fragile state, co-chaired by Governor Kane and Congressman Hamilton, who were the co-chairs of the 9-11 Commission, which 15 years ago made a series of recommendations that have not fully been implemented about getting at the roots for the purposes of preventing extremism, not just addressing the the manifestations of extremism. And so by definition, it takes a long term to, to do that. So if that's the direction you're going in, you will need to be thinking about a longer time frame, a more sustained set of actions. When you think about extremism, per se, I don't know if you can preview any of the findings here, but I'm more curious as to how it compares with understanding the roots of fragility, right? Like, is extremism and its roots in the way that this commission's starting to uh, dive into fundamentally just a subset of the roots of fragility? Or is there something uniquely different? 
Well, the the commonality is around the existence of grievances um, there that that are a constant feature of fragile states because there are typically very fragmented societies or um, large groups who are excluded from opportunities. Um, there's often an economic dimension. There's often, um, you know, a sense that you that certain segments of the population just don't belong to the state and have opportunities in any way. But there's also an important uh, an importance to looking in a more specific way. I think one of the one of the f- problems we've had with our policy is that we take a very macro view and come up with recipes that aren't contextually rooted. Um, so there will be findings released and then further recommendations uh, that won't be developed until early next year. Yeah, that's exciting. I want to, as we kind of uh, move this conversation forward and into its ending, ask you kind of a question about how you're thinking about fertility in this political moment. So. Over the past few years, I think broadly internationally, there's been a sense that there's a, a democratic decline that's on the horizons. Um, political scientists books, political scientists are writing books like the decline of democracies and deaths of democracies, and I think it's very nascent um, in this kind of shifting political wind that people are starting to notice, primarily in OECD countries. And I would love to hear whether any of those broader shifts globally have changed the way you think about the types of fragility that you spend your time looking at. I don't know if it's changed my view so much as underscored the fact that democracies must deliver. And, you know, after the blossoming of democracy that we saw, particularly after the fall of the Soviet Union, I think what we're seeing is that, in fact, democracies haven't delivered. And moreover, a lot of democracies are being called that because elections were held. And it's an over-reliance on elections as some sort of indicator of democracy, regardless of whether any of the other aspects of truly being responsive to the needs of your people exist. Um, So for me, what we're seeing is a huge wake-up call that governance really need to be more responsive to their people. And this is, of course, happening at the age of growing inequality, uh, income inequality, that is a feature of many countries. So uh, I think that it underscores some of the core tenets of uh, how you diagnose fragility and understand how many countries are on a spectrum. It's all a spectrum um, of how fragile you are in which of the realms. Uh, And um, it's a good wake-up call. We've focused this conversation a lot on what fragility means for the countries affected or for governments and donors. I'm going to ask a slightly more selfish question now, which is, if you're in the International Rescue Committee, um, what should you be thinking about in terms of uh, fragility and how should it affect our work? And you're incredibly well placed to answer this question, given your past leadership of Mercy Corps, because I think it's a very relevant question for NGOs as well. Well, of course, the International Rescue Committee did a great program in Afghanistan that really combined meeting immediate humanitarian needs in the health sector uh, in a way that created greater institutional capacity uh, for, I I think it was the Ministry of Health. Um, There are very creative ways that humanitarian assistance can both 
build peace as well as create the foundations for longer-term development that can and should be pursued. Um, there are ways to think about it as building greater resilience, uh, but when we look at 80% of global humanitarian assistance today is for victims of violent conflict versus a decade ago when 80% was for victims of natural disaster. It really pushes us to think differently about what we do with that humanitarian assistance and how we use it in a way that begins to create more solid foundations for moving forward and connecting it more deeply to peace building and development initiatives. I feel like that, that has got to be a shift that happens. Um, in the last four years, humanitarian budgets have grown by almost four times. So we can't afford I, to, to just be responding to crises. We need to think about how we collectively move upstream and address the causes of these conflicts that have created historic levels of displacement, 68 and a half million people. So, so one unique perspective that you have on this actually is that you were had it as a humanitarian and then you went into government. And bridging the humanitarian development divide, which is one of, I think, the underlying um, elements that you're talking about here, I think requires humanitarians to overcome um, a, uh, a kind of skepticism or hesitancy to engage in politics and to engage with states um, because it oftentimes compromises some of our sense of the core humanitarian principles of independence and neutrality. And having bridged both of those spaces, when you now look at this moment and, and the claim you're making there, like, how do you think humanitarians should be thinking about that? I think there is an enormous need for the humanitarian, the peace building, and the development communities to come closer together. Uh, what, what, what we see over and over again is you have humanitarian action in response to some crisis point. Um, often there's really good work done in creating networks and working with communities and having those issues be community-led. And then there's often a long gap, and then maybe development action comes forward. In 2011, during the, and when I had just recently gone into government and the drought occurred in the Horn of Africa, I looked at USAID budgets in the Horn of Africa. How much development assistance do you think was going up into the drylands of northern Kenya? Minimal, I presume. Zero. And year after year, we were putting half a million dollars of humanitarian assistance, year after year, because it's just a constant cycle of drought and conflict. And so the big push that um, created some very useful results was to bring those communities together so that the humanitarian assistance was, you know, sequenced, integrated, and layered with development. And you've got to have a peace-building lens in there as well. We, we can do these things differently. This was talked about at the Humanitarian Summit in Istanbul. But when people get overly concerned with frameworks that are conceptual versus what does it look like in a community? I mean, community members do not know if you're a humanitarian or a development or a peace builder. They don't care. And so it is up to us. We, it, we, we must be responsible for doing the kind of work that will really make a difference, particularly in countries that are p plagued by recurring disasters and cycles of conflict. And we, 
even within just that community, that's very doable. I mean, then you've got security and politics, and that's where your battle star, scars, Ravi, are going to come up. But we can do this, and I've seen progress. We've all signed up for it at the Istanbul summit, but we got to lean into it. Nancy, that was fantastic therapy. I'm feeling much more optimistic. Thank you so much for being on Displaced. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode with Nancy Lindborg. We hope you enjoyed it and have a new and fresh sense of what fragility means. Grant, do you know what fragility means yet? I'm not going over it again. People just listen for an hour. <laughs> All right. Um, if you did like that, please subscribe um, and tell your friends to subscribe. Um, and please do share it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this. And we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at displacedatrescue.org. As always, we'd love to hear who you think should be on the show, what conversations you want us to have. Uh, also, tweet at us. Use hashtag displacedpodcast to get in touch with us. We would love to hear you. A huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Alex... Chlamydia. <laughs> Chlamydia. <Ooh. laughs> a huge thank you to our team at the International Rescue Committee, including Alex Bandea, Ben Moskowitz, and Catherine Long. And at Vox Media, our production team includes associate producer Jelani Carter, Jarrett Floyd, and Griffin Tanner. We'd also like to thank our senior producer, Golda Arthur, who continues to tell us that she loves tiki drinks with small umbrellas and that she thinks that our podcast should include them. So look forward to future episodes in which they may be included. Uh, a huge thank you to Nishak Kurwa, who is our executive producer of audio. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. It's uh, Matt Iglesias. I'm Dara Lind. Ezra Klein. We're the hosts of The Weeds from Vox.com. We're taking a deep dive into the policy decisions that shape the political landscape that you see from day to day. People always like to say you, you don't want to get into the weeds. This is a podcast for people who do like to get into the weeds, who follow politics because they care about healthcare, about economics, about zoning, about inequality, about the actual underlying issues. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to get into the weeds because that's where all the policy happens. And that's the things that change people's lives. You can find more information about us at vox.com slash the weeds. Catch new episodes every Tuesday and Friday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this show. And be sure to subscribe to the show to never, ever, under any circumstances, miss an episode. Yeah, if you miss even one, we'll be very sad. <laughs>